Greenwich Village in 58 was a madman's paradise. In those days, a bunch of us went around together drinking too much coffee and smoking too much cannabis and talking all the time about poetry and Nietzsche and bebop. I had been running around with the same guys I knew from Columbia, give or take a colored jazz musician here or a Benny addict there, and together we would get good and stoned and ride the subway down to Washington Square. I guess you could say I liked my Columbia buddies all right. They were swell enough guys, but when you really got down to it, they were a pack of poser wannabe poets in tweed, and I knew it was only a matter of time before I outgrew them. Their fathers were bankers and lawyers, and once their fascination with poetic manifestos wore off, they would settle down and become bankers and lawyers too, and marry a nice debutante. If I'm being honest, I'll admit I was mostly pissing away my time in school and not trying very hard, on account of the fact I'd lost the interest. With every passing day, I was becoming increasingly convinced academia was for the birds, and the more time I spent below 14th Street, the more it was becoming obvious to me that the village was my true education. When I finally threw in the towel and dropped my last class at Columbia, my old man came poking around my apartment in Morningside Heights. He ahemmed quietly to himself and fingered the waxy leaves of the plants in the window and finally sat with his rump covering a water stain on a hand-me-down Louis XVI sofa my great-aunt had deemed too ugly to keep in her own apartment. Together we drank a couple of fingers of bourbon, neat, and then he shook my hand in a dignified way and informed me the best lesson he could teach me at this point in my life was self-reliance. His plan mainly involved cutting me off from the family fortune and making long speeches on the superior quality of earned pleasures. Once my old man broke the news about how I was going to have to pave my own road, it was all over pretty quickly after that. I threw a couple of loud parties and didn't pay my rent, and then the landlord had me out lickety-split, and I had to go looking for a new place. Which is how, as I entered into my study of the relative value of earned pleasures, I found myself renting a one-room studio in the village with no hot water and a toilet down the hall. The lid was missing on the tank of that toilet, and I remember the worst thing I ever did to my fellow hallmates was to get sick after coming home drunk one night and mistake the open tank for the open bowl. But even without my whiskey-induced embellishments, the building was a dump. It was a pretty crummy apartment, and when it rained, the paint on the walls bubbled something awful. But I liked being near the basement cafes where people were passionate about trying out new things with the spoken word, which was still pretty exciting to me at the time. In those days, you could walk the streets all around Washington Square and plunge down a narrow stairway here and there to find a room painted all black with red light bulbs screwed into the fixtures, and there'd be someone standing in front of a crowd telling America to go to hell or maybe acting out the birth of a sacred cow in India. It was all kind of bananas, and you were never sure what you were going to see. But after a while, you started to come across the same people, mostly. I had seen Miles, Swish, Bobby, and Pal around the village, of course, and they had seen me, too. We were friendly enough with one another, all of us being arty types. I knew their faces, and I knew their names. But the night I really entered the picture, I was in such a sorry state, it was a real act of mercy on their part. I was slated to read my poems for the first time ever at a place called The Sweet Spot. Earlier that afternoon, I had been looking over my pages 
when it suddenly struck me they were no good. The discovery had me seized up with fear until my whole body was paralyzed, and I sensed I was rank with the stench of my impending failure. The poems were bad, and that was the truth of it. My solution was whiskey, and by six o'clock I had managed to put down half a bottle before the poems finally started to look better than they had at 3 p.m. In my foolish state, I decided finishing the other half of the bottle would be the key to gaining at least a few more increments of poetic improvement. By the time I took the stage, I could barely hold myself upright. Somehow I managed to get off two poems, more or less, before I heard the wooden stool next to me clatter to the ground as it fell over and I felt the cold, sticky, black-painted floor rise up like a swelling wave to my hip and shoulder, and seconds later, my face. When I came to, I was lying on a couch in Swish's apartment, with the whole gang sitting around the kitchen table, talking in loud voices about Charlie Parker, while a seminal record of his spun on a turntable near my head. After a few minutes, Pal came over and handed me a cool washcloth for my bruised face. Then Bobby whistled and commented that I had some kind of madman style in an admiring tone of voice that made me think perhaps the two poems I could remember getting off hadn't been so bad after all. And maybe it was even true that in getting wasted I had actually made the truest choice an artist could make, like Van Gogh and his absinthe. I could see they were all deciding whether I was a hack or a genius, and the fact that they might be open to the second possibility being true fortified me and filled me with a kind of dopey pride. 